G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. And we don't ask for much in turn, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to uh, Apple uh, Podcast or Acast or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we'd really appreciate appreciate a few moments of your time to leave us a review. So today, joining Brian and myself in our virtual studio, we're going to talk talk to Dr. Emily Hall, one of our uh, lecturers here at the RVC in veterinary education. And we thought we'd talk about heat-related illness. So thank you, Emily, for joining us. No, it's great to be here. Thanks, Dom. Very good. Um, so um, I suppose if we get, get into heat-related illness, maybe I should I should ask, why do we talk about, so it, it, some people might um, refer to it as as heat stroke. So could I ask that maybe the, the, maybe the terminology with the, with the name itself when we're talking about heat-related illness, what, what, what is that? So heat-related illness encompasses all forms of illness that's triggered by um, excessive body heat, basically. So heat stroke is traditionally the most severe form of that illness, and that's certainly the one that, that people are probably most familiar with in terms of humans getting heat stroke when it's too hot or animals getting heat stroke. But heat-related illness really encompasses all grades. So from the very mild, so overheating a little bit where you'd potentially have a bit of a headache and, and need a drink and a sit down, um, right up to, to the more severe form of, of heat stroke, which is life-threatening um, and, and does result in fatalities in people and animals every year. And so, so Emily, if, if you're, you're in the UK as, as well as I am, and it's not necessarily a country renowned for um, extremes of heat, apart from, I suppose, like recently. So, so why, why did you look into, into, into this? So this really came about because I was collared by a colleague to come and take some dog temperatures. <laughs> as is the way you join a new institution, people talk to you, find out that you're a vet, and all of a sudden have lots of questions for you. She did a sport called Canny Cross. Um, which is basically uh, cross-country running whilst attached to your dog with a bungee cord. Um, there's also Bicure, which is cross-country cycling, um, mountain biking, you might call it, also tied to your dog, which I think is insane, but there we go. And these races are, are five kilometres upwards. Um, they do shorter ones for, for younger animals and younger people. And typically kind of September to April, which, as you say, in the UK would normally be quite cool. Um, but at times, you know, we, we have Easter's when it hits high 20s, 30 degrees centigrade temperature. And she was really worried about dogs overheating and had heard of dogs developing heat stroke, um, severe heat related illness at races and actually had heard of fatalities. So she wanted to do a research project looking at how hot dogs were getting Um and really everything kind of came around from there. I, I went to some races, I took some temperatures and I saw dogs with temperatures of 42.5 centigrade um, standing, panting, looking at me and asking for treats and was frankly astounded. Um, and that then sent me off into a deep dive into the literature looking at heat stroke in dogs, temperature regulation in dogs and, and here we are today. <laughs> Well, well, very, very good, and um, and so so with, with within that sort of background, and and um, was was part of the difficulty at the start, like working out what what is the thing that you're looking at. So is that where that heat related heat related illness came in? So what <clears throat> what's your sort of working definition of of that? So my working definition of heat related illness would be the biochemical and um, 
kind of clinicopathological, so tissue damage triggered by excessive body temperature, um, and crucially for those severe stages, damage to the neurological system. Um, the you know the, the definitions of heat stroke in people and severe heat related illness in dogs would be neurological damage, so seizures, persistent seizures, um, loss of consciousness, um, becoming comatose, and eventually dying because of, of the damage that's been done. Um, so in terms of our original project, we were, we were simply looking to see how hot dogs got and whether we thought dogs were getting hot enough to put them at risk of heat-related illness. Um, and as I've said, with a temperature of 42.5, the traditional textbooks would tell you that that is kind of absolutely definitive heat-related illness. That dog should be virtually dead at that temperature. And yet we were looking at a perfectly happy dog wagging its tail, admittedly panting at us, but wanting treats and fuss and, and making a complete recovery within minutes. Um, so then that really made us start to question what was being said about the diagnosis of the condition um, and the recognition of heat-related illness. And so did you, I, I suppose there's there's other um, examples, aren't there, about like looking at physiology when clinically you should be dead or, or, or dying, because I think that was part of the... Um, I forgot the name of the Everest study when they looked at the sort of high hypoxic people got climbing yep. um, in Everest and, and basically they should be hypoxic and dead and they're not and they're, they're managing to to um, to truck along so so maybe our understanding of physiology is maybe not what it's cracked up to be or there's uh, um, it's more complicated than we think which is probably probably the answer so so um, um, so we so how do you how do you go about trying to get get your your data how do you how do you answer this question so we started off measuring dog temperatures at canning cross events um and as i say that kind of really just underscored how much we, we didn't really know and how much conflict there was within the literature um so then i started looking at the other end going straight to the veterinary literature looking at heat stroke in dogs um and was a little bit surprised by how little there was admittedly this is not a very common condition um, we hear about it a lot because it's quite extreme. Um, and certainly in dogs, the previous literature would suggest that up to 50% of, of dogs with heat stroke die. So, you know, it's, it's something we want to recognise and, and get on top of pretty quickly and ideally prevent. Um, but the literature left me with even more questions and even more confusion. And there was nothing really except for case studies from the UK. Um, now, I knew that heat stroke was happening. I'd seen it in clinical practice as a primary care vet. I, I had colleagues who'd seen it. I have friends who work in, in ECC who, who treat it regularly in the summer, unfortunately. So, knew it was happening in the UK and, and decided that, you know, we should probably try and find out what's going on um, and happened to be at BSAVA Congress and collar um, Dr. Dan O'Neill about the Vet Compass Project. Um, so, we, we got chatting. I managed to pique his interest and we applied for some funding from Dogs Trust, who very kindly funded our hot dogs research. Um, and then we started trawling through the Vet Compass database to look for, for cases and everything kind of went from there. And for those people who um, might not be aware, would you, would you mind sort of explaining a bit what Vet Compass is and, and how you look at that data? And then maybe um, also what a potentially the pros and cons of looking at a large data set? Yeah, so Vet Compass is um, a database, really. It collects data from, well, practices all over the UK, and there is now Vet Compass Australia, and there are Vet Compass iterations across the globe, with, with more coming online um, every month, really. Um, but it's it's kind of 
recognizing the power that the NHS has in terms of having a centralized database and being able to look at population level health data and trying to do that for veterinary medicine. So practices from all over the UK, primary care, independent corporate referral, out of hours, the works um, can sign up and join Vet Compass and submit their, their electronic patient records, basically. So Vet Compass, like, speaks to the practice management system um, and de-identified patient data is then shared with the database. So um, practices tell their clients this is happening. Clients have the opportunity to to remove their animal's data if if they don't wish for it to be included. But otherwise, the whole patient's clinical record is then imported into the database and researchers can use it and search it and and look for for data. So right down to items that are charged, you know, the number of wormers dogs are being prescribed each year, how often vaccinations are given, which vaccinations are given, right down to the clinical notes and what the veterinary surgeons, veterinary nurses and receptionists have written in the patient's records about what has happened with specific events. Um, Now, it is massive. Um, There are millions of animals within this database. So what tends to happen is we'll, we'll define a study population. So for our heat stroke vet compass data set, we opted for dogs under veterinary care during 2016. So essentially, any dog that was seen by a veterinary practice, um, so confirmed to be alive during 2016, was included in our data set, which meant we had over 900,000 dog records, which is far too much to manually search through, as I'm, I'm sure you can imagine. So the database allows you to use search terms to flag up specific words um, or items that have been mentioned within the patient's clinical history. And you can then manually read those to determine whether or not those notes match up with your your study criteria or not. So for example, for my study, there were plenty of booster appointments where vets quite rightly said to people, your dog is a brachycephalic, Um, just be aware in the hot weather, they are at greater risk of heat stroke. Um, So that would flag up as a, a, a kind of a case that, that came under my search terms, but wasn't a heat-related illness event. So they would be excluded versus the, the classic cases of and a dog left in a hot car, um, owner come back, found collapsed, has presented um, dead on arrival, for example. Um, so that's, that's a very brief overview of the process. But needless to say, it, it took me about a year to work through all of the events that we found in the Vet Compass program and determine if they were true heat-related illness events or not and extract the data that, that we wanted from the clinical record to answer our questions. So, so when you have a look at that sort of data set, which <clears throat> which sounds sort of mammoth, that the automatic process, I suppose, is, is just the um, finding the animals with those search terms that you put in. But still, it sounds very much like a manual process, Emily, that you have to look through each to make sure that it um, either agrees with your search criteria or not. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and do, do you know, just out of interest and it's a bit off, off topic, but is there um, any plans for some sort of artificial intelligence to, to, to try and look at that and, and make a bit more sense to give you less numbers to have a look at? Or is that quite still difficult with the amount of terms that people use for similar things? Yeah, no, they have already started looking at using natural language processing to automatically search through records. Um, and this is where I confess that I know that the Vet Compass team have published on this, but I can't remember what it says because it's been a while since I read it. Um, so no, there's absolutely work being done. But as you say, the nature of the clinical records are 
that they are clinical records. They've not been written for a research purpose. They are written from a veterinary purpose, for, for a health record purpose. So, you know, we use acronyms, we use shorthand, we make spelling mistakes when, when we type quickly. Um, so at the moment, the majority of vet compass studies are done with, with manual data processing, but um, work is being done to try and automate that process to to speed things up and so in in your work emily when you're looking at at, at this and and i know you've created like a like a framework of of categorization of the severity of heat related illness um but do it, what what were the other things that um that came out and that's obviously very good for public awareness and what vets in practice or the veterinary team can tell that their um their clients um, but what were the things that, that came out, I suppose, in relation to um, sort of breed or how hot animals get as well as the, the common sort of triggers or etiology that might be a causating factor or contributing factor to this condition? Yeah, so we, we started out just by kind of how many cases are there each year and one of those cases happening. So um, the kind of the apparent incidents of the number of dogs presenting to primary care veterinary practices in the UK in 2016 um, was 0.04%, which means nothing to me. Um, so probably nothing to you either, but roughly one in two and a half thousand dogs presenting with some form of heat related illness from mild up to severe. And of all of those cases, um, so right from mild to severe, one in seven of those dogs died as a result of that presentation. So instantly, you know, this is not a common condition, but it's a potentially fatal one that can have huge welfare implications. So that kind of gave us the emphasis to, to continue. Um, in terms of when it's happening, unsurprisingly, summer months and July is the big month for heat-related illness presenting to vet practices. And this summer mirrors that exactly, you know, the heat wave that we had with 40 plus degree temperatures I'm on several big social media veterinary groups and I saw the the posts flooding in with people treating you know numbers of, of cases of dogs and other species during that heat wave um, so yeah it, it's it's a summer problem but it's not just a summer problem we found heat related illness events all year round um, you know a dog died in January from overheating so it's flagging that it's it's not just a hot weather problem um, so in terms of the, the causes, the triggers of heat-related illness, the, the biggest finding we found by far was that in the UK, hot cars are lethal, yes, but they were only accounting for 5% of the cases presenting to vets. Um, three quarters of our heat-related illness events were following exercise. So that could be dogs being taken out for a walk during a heat wave, um, but it was also dogs doing quite high intensity exercise during relatively low temperatures. As I say, one dog died in January. Um, so yeah, that that finding was huge and has actually resulted in, in a change to the educational campaigns that we run in the UK. Hopefully everyone has heard of Dogs Die in Hot Cars, um, a hugely important educational campaign that that's rolled out every summer to warn people because people do still leave their dogs to cooking cars unfortunately um but this summer we also rolled out dogs die on hot walks to try and raise awareness of the issues of, of walking dogs in particularly hot weather and exercising dogs in particularly hot weather and it's not just 
your kind of classic heat stroke case, which most vets would probably picture a brachycephalic there, if we're being honest. Um, it's dogs with underlying health conditions. Laryngeal paralysis is, is a big one for your larger breed dogs, heart conditions, any respiratory condition, um, and being overweight as well increases the risk. Of, of developing heat related illness so so you you obviously um that, that yeah it's a, a massive thing is do you do you think as in recognizing that it was more related to exercise and that, that being the, the the main sort of trigger that you saw do you think part of that was for kind of like education that people know that being in a in a hot car leaving any animal in a in a in confined confined spaces is, is going to be a problem but then people are less aware of actually a, anything else that could be uh could be a trigger so is that like that's good in some ways that we we can educate people to know that 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 happens and hopefully that does that give us hope that if we get the education right or the message out there that um that be careful when you exercise in warm environments that hopefully that will decrease the, the numbers too? Yeah, that's what we're hoping. I mean, some people are genuinely shocked. And I read in clinical histories, people saying to their vet, I thought he could only get a heat stroke in a hot car. He hasn't been in a hot car. I don't understand what's happened. So yes, there is that perception that dogs only die in hot cars during the summer. And, and absolutely getting the public to be aware of the fact that it can be from exercise. It can be from being left in a hot house. Um, you know, in humans, we see heat stroke in two main populations. Um, younger males, typically either working in a sport environment or a, a kind of manual labor environment, overheating whilst working or, or competing or training. And then elderly adults, um, both male and female, often becoming kind of, you know, I want to say entrapped, but confined within their accommodation, their accommodation potentially being on the lower income side and perhaps in the centre of a city. And we get heat islands within cities where the temperature is much hotter. Um, and so being trapped in a building where it's overheated and they, they can't get out and they overheat there. Um, and we saw that in dogs as well. We, we saw dogs, especially in London, developing heat-related illness following confinement in a hot building. Um, and that's something we're all going to have to be aware of and, and start to make plans to mitigate for as the world keeps getting hotter. Absolutely. And, and with the, are they, as you mentioned before about the quintessential thought that certain breeds are more predisposed, so did that come out in your data? And I know it's always got to be in relation to the most common breeds of dogs that we have currently in the UK, but were, were brachies overrepresented? Yeah, absolutely. Brachies were were more likely to develop than any other breed. Um, the top breeds, Bulldog, French Bulldog, uh, Cavalier, King Charles Spaniel, obviously all, all brachycephalic breeds. We also had the Chow Chow in there, but the Chow Chow comes with a caveat that we don't have very many Chow Chows in the UK. Um, it just happened that quite a lot of them presented with heat-related illness. So, Probably to do with their, their massive double coats, if we're honest about it. Um, but although they they had the highest odds for heat-related illness, perhaps not the most commonly affected purely because of numbers. But we also saw breeds we weren't expecting. Um, so English Springer Spaniel, Greyhound, Staffordshire Bull Terriers. Um, certainly the Greyhound, you would think they are the most kind of heat-adapted breed in terms of their their. The, the shape, their conformation, because they've got the long limbs, they've got very thin hair coats, they're typically not that overweight, although there are obviously fat greyhounds out there, I'm not saying there aren't. Um, so we were surprised by that finding. Um, we haven't published any data on this, but 
having looked at the cases of greyhounds, there tended to be older dogs in the greyhound population that were presenting with heat-related illness and several with laryngeal paralysis. So we think that actually it's a condition of old age in that breed, um, whereas with brachys, it was at every age, um, lots of very young animals presenting as well as the elderly animals. For the English Springer Spaniels, we suspect, but again, cannot confirm that this is a temperament issue. Um, they do obviously have um, some genetic underlying issues um, such as malignant hypothermia, which they can develop. And it's possible some of our cases could have been misdiagnosed. Um, but having witnessed Springer Spaniels at Canicross events and agility events, I mean, they're just nuts. <laughs> and they're, they're so willing to do what their owner wants them to do that they will just run until they drop. Um, so we, we think that kind of that drive to please their owner is probably what puts them at more risk. But yeah, the, the brachycephalics were definitely the the, the most at risk. Well, if one of those um, <clears throat> odd causes of hypoglycemia and that's referred to in texts like hunting dog hypoglycemia as mm. animals that just run and run and run until their glucose levels decrease. And you, like talking to students in general, we say it's 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 pretty rare or hasn't seen it, but there's there's um, a few letters from to the editor in the um the the vet record the british veterinary journal about uh, um, <clears throat> um spaniels like collapsing on on you know on these exercise craze fuel things and and being hyperglycemic so so i suppose there there probably are equivalent of that hunting dog hyperglycemia dogs that just want to run and run and run and run and run until they get that and you but you, you know, you think the the body has enough adaptations to deal with that, but maybe <laughs> this cocker uh, or spaniels can push that to um, the extreme. Well, it's the same as people, you know. We're <laughs> I will absolutely not run <laughs> ever if unless chased. There we go. Um, whereas, you know, I have friends who will go out and will give themselves mild heat related illness training through the summer. Um, it's yeah it's that kind of that competitive drive overtaking your survival drive <laughs> <laughs> in, interesting so when you're when you're looking at, at all this data so you can you it, it's good to see what problems we have and what conditions um arise but does it give you ideas about you temperatures that of a of a concern. I can imagine that it's a bit of a problem to extrapolate because you don't know when an animal was exposed to whatever condition, environment, exercise they had prior to presentation. But also, do you, did you look at maybe treatments and and to try and work out what people did and whether anything was better or worse or or had no bearing on on outcome? Yeah, so to start with temperature, that was, again, one of our, our big findings and one of my big recommendations when dealing with heat-related illness is to not get too bogged down with temperature because, as you say, it changes and how we treat the animal will affect the animal's temperature. So they may well have had a temperature of, of 43, 44, 45 out in the field, but by the time they've been sat in an air-conditioned car for 20 minutes being driven down to the practice, that temperature could well have dropped. Um, and when we, we looked at it, we found that temperature did not have any predictive kind of value for outcome. So dogs with higher or lower temperatures were no more or less likely to go on to die um, than dogs presenting with, with a relatively normal temperature. So, I mean, absolutely, if you're looking at a dog and you've just taken its temperature and it's saying 43, 
it needs cooling. You know, that is that is an overheated dog. But equally, if you've got a dog with a history of having been running out in the sun, having collapsed, having vomited, having seizured, and it's presenting with a, an, an abnormally low temperature, I wouldn't rule out heat-related illness from that point. So it's useful to a certain extent, and I would certainly be monitoring it and trying to manage it. But be aware that the temperature the dog achieved whilst they were out in the world, in, in the hot car, in the hot building, out on their walk, you're not going to know that. You know, until we have, like they do with dairy cattle, little bolusters that sit in their stomach and permanently log their temperature. The farmers, I'm so jealous of that, but there we go. We can't do that for dogs. Their stomachs work a different way. Um, we, we don't know what temperature dogs were during most of, of these events. So we can only respond to what's in front of us. As I say, we, we did extract temperature data and, and that kind of led to us saying that it shouldn't be considered diagnostic criteria. It should be considered, but decisions shouldn't really be made based on it purely. We also looked at how people were managing temperature. And I think the most disappointing thing was that you know, two thirds of the records didn't even mention how the animal was cooled, if the animal was cooled, what cooling methods were made, like that just didn't make it into the clinical history. And that's probably partly because this is an emergency presentation. You know, when a, when a dog with severe heat related illness presents, seizuring or comatosed, potentially pouring, you know, bloody diarrhea and vomiting, it's all hands on deck. And, and perhaps the quality of the clinical notes don't quite reflect how much work was actually put into trying to save them. And that is one of the downsides of using electronic patient records as I say then they're not written from a research point of view and all of the detail of what was done by the veterinary team isn't always captured um so we we are hoping to look into that um and the project is continuing and that's that's one of the things we're hoping to explore with round two of of the hot dogs that compass work which is going to be using vets now um out of hours data to look at dogs presenting with heat-related illness um, and specifically aiming to capture that what are people using to cool um, and potentially looking at which seems to be more or less effective. And were there some records of uh, percentage-wise roughly about how many animals had some sort of cooling prior to presentation? Again, that just didn't clearly come through in the records. Sometimes it did say, you know, owner cooled prior to arrival, um, arrived with wet blankets, wet wet towels, etc. Um, but as I say, it was disappointing how many records didn't even mention it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, apart from uh, temp, uh, like cooling, cooling the, the the patient down in 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 some way, and I imagine there's a a, a a variety of doing that, but probably not having something on the patient as a as a wet towel. But um, uh, were there were there other sort of treatments, or was it? basically I suppose supportive or supportive of the systems that were affected um that the vet saw at the time yeah it's absolutely that it's just responding to the the problems that you've got in front of you it can affect everybody system um and so you may have animals that need fluid resuscitation blood product replacement it particularly affects the coagulation pathway so you know, DIC is a secondary problem from heat-related illness, um, hypo um, coagulable states. Um, so dogs starting to bleed is certainly an issue. Um, but yeah, fluid resuscitation, GI tract protection, preventing vomiting, and and yeah, just supportive really. Um, but in human medicine and in equine medicine, we know that cooling is the absolute 
most important thing. If we can get to the patient when they are overheated and we can limit that temperature rise and the duration of elevated body temperature, that is what prevents the, the thermal damage. And unfortunately, within the canine literature, we've somehow ended up with a situation where we have first aid courses and, and veterinary textbooks saying that we should be cooling slowly and we should be cooling using, you know, tepid water and, and we shouldn't be aggressively cooling dogs because it can cause shock. Um, and we just don't have any evidence to back that up. Um, and certainly in the field, I've seen dogs finish races at 42 degrees and throw themselves into zero temperature water and sit there for five minutes until they then get up and walk out. So, um, you know, we, we do have some data on cooling dogs in the field for sports events, and certainly I've never seen any negative effects from cooling. Um, the longer the dog is hot, the more thermal damage is being done. So we desperately need some more work on this, and, and we need people to kind of, yeah, re record what cooling is being done so that we can work out what's most effective for our dogs. So, so you see getting them getting them wet definitely with a, a, any cooler water than the current sort of temperature would be would be advised and and not and, and i suppose what i was trying to say with the towel you don't want to put anything on them that can trap no so from a, a kind of thermodynamic point of view evaporation is is the main cooling method that dogs are going to be using once they're really hot provided that, that the relative humidity isn't too high which it often is in the uk um but yeah water um and as you say anything cooler than the dog the military working dog team over in the states out of, of penn state and what have you um have done lots of work on this and they put dogs into 30 degree water which you know you'll agree that's bath water that's that's not cool um but they were simulating the conditions that you would have in a desert working environment and the dogs cooled in 30 degree water because it's still cooler than their body temperature um likewise a, a very old paper which ethically would no longer thankfully be um repeatable looked at cooling dogs that had been artificially given heat related illness and i'm not going into too much detail about that um but they found that tap water so 15 to 16 degrees resulted in the fastest rate of cooling for conscious dogs but once dogs have lost consciousness they stop panting so they cool a lot slower um, and obviously their head can slip under the water and, and they can drown. So, yeah, there is, there is a kind of an element of care when cooling dogs if using immersive cold water that, that needs to be considered as well. I suppose you're having access to to that as well, but I suppose getting animals away from that heat source in into shade or or in inside and, and getting them getting them wet. Well, like water is a great uh, thing to cool cool down. And I know we we've kind of had a a um, good discussion about this before but is, is there anything to say like when you should stop cooling again all the veterinary textbooks seem to talk about 39.5 as being the magical number um i'm yet to find where that's come from however certainly in human medicine they cool to to normothermia basically so cool until a normal temperature has been achieved obviously a lot of the cooling methods we use so air movement um cold water water immersion can continue cooling the body if we're not careful um, and certainly I think we've all seen heat related illness cases that have swung the other way um, and developed hypothermia um, less dangerous than than hyperthermia would be my humble opinion in that situation but there we go um, so yeah we, we do have to be a little bit cautious but I think cooling until the clinical signs have, have ceased and at the moment everything says 39.5 
rightly or wrongly. And, and Emily, you, you, you looked into the geographic distribution of, of this as, as well. And could I, could I ask, why was that important to you? What, what kind of questions were you trying to answer? Was it more to highlight to people in people like to, to vets and um, owners in certain areas that you're, you're more at risk? And, um, and that must have been quite difficult to do to look at temperature data and everything associated with that. Yeah. So the UK is obviously pretty unique in terms of geography and climate because we're an island um, and, and we should be a lot colder than we are. And I, I'm not a geographer, so I'm not even going to try to discuss the, the factors that control the UK's climate. But, you know, traditionally we talk about Scotland being very cold, Wales being very wet and the South Coast being pretty warm. Um, so I, we were just interested really as to whether there was any geographic variation. Um, and there was. There were heat-related illness cases across the UK, um, the whole of the UK, but there were pockets where there seemed to be quite a lot. Um, so London had a higher instance of heat-related illness than, than the rest of the UK. And as I said earlier, the, the kind of the heat island effect of cities being hotter than surrounding countryside certainly plays a factor there. We also had little pockets around Liverpool and little pockets around South End. And again, I've not, I can't say this for definite, but my working theory is that these are regions with a higher brachycephalic population um, than others. Um, that said, Oxfordshire also had a huge number of heat related illness cases and um, they had more Labradors than anything else. So, who knows? Um, but yeah, we were, we were just interested really in, in, is this a UK-wide problem? Are there specific areas we should be warning? And, and the answer really was no. Everyone in the UK should be aware of this problem. Um, and again, the UK's climate is so variable that is one of the biggest issues for dogs. So like us, they, they take six weeks to acclimatise to heat. We very rarely get six weeks in the UK to kind of develop heat acclimation it just doesn't happen we get hot spells we get hot spells in february we get hot spells in september and then we have heat waves of 40 in in july with no prior preparation for it so it is a problem that can affect everyone um dogs cats horses people the works if we get high enough temperatures suddenly and we're not expecting them and then and then you put out um a number of like promotional sort of material to to get out really to to the to the to press to enable people to have a bit more information about you know the, the risk associated and, and signs associated to try and like prevent this from from happening in the future and with your um like big data set sort of hat on do you think we would have a way of working out whether that does anything we would need to repeat the project <laughs> um and it's it's one of those issues where the world is getting hotter so if we do repeat this project and, and look at incidents and, and risk factors and, and severity in the future the world will be hotter than it was when we ran it in 2016 there was a heat wave in 2016 so it was a particularly hot year the population of dogs is likely to be different brachycephalics continue to be popular um, and obesity is, is an ongoing problem that we're, we're trying to tackle. Um, but also we're raising awareness. So whereas in, in our original 2016 data set, I am absolutely confident we missed cases. I am certain there were animals that presented dead on arrival, presented you know profoundly unwell, um, that were due to heat-related illness that we simply didn't diagnose because the owner didn't recognize potentially that, that 
they'd been at risk. They didn't realize that exercise could cause it as well as hot cars. Um, or it, you know, it was simply missed. Or even potentially people didn't want to admit that their animal had overheated because there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt associated with this condition. Um, so, yeah, do, I don't know whether we'll be able to measure whether we've had an impact or not. Um, what I'd like to see is that more dogs present with milder forms of the disease because from what we've looked at, over 95% of the dogs that present to a vet with mild to moderate disease live, whereas less than 50% of them with severe heat-related illness live. So if we can get people recognising the early signs and seeking treatment earlier, we can hopefully save lives. Do, do, you, do you think that this is a condition that people, um, not people, sorry, that the, the veterinary team might misdiagnose? I think it, it's, it is a challenging one. It's a little bit like epilepsy in that there's no definitive diagnostic test. You have to rule out everything else. Um, and certainly that was one of the challenges in, in the data set. I would read a case and I'd read the history and everything in the history would be saying heat-related illness. And then two days later, they'd be opening the dog up with a pyometra. Um, so... Yes, it is possible to miss. And as I say, because temperature changes so quickly, if no one was present to witness the dog experiencing the heat-triggering event, um, then that history is, is missing and, and we, we don't have that crucial piece of information. And then we're just left with putting the pieces together from the clinical presentation of the animal. And, um, and can I ask as well, Emily, I know, I know um, you looked at uh, other species and obviously not in the in the same sort of numbers, but was there anything different that that struck you about um the other species that you looked at um yeah so we used SAVSnet, um which is a bsava and university of liverpool collaboration um that looks at primary care data as well um, and we looked at all companion animals presenting to vets with heat related illness and dogs were the you know the predominant caseload um, and actually everything we found with the dogs completely mirrored what we found with that compass in terms of severity in terms of triggers um, and in terms of, of the clinical signs they're presenting with the feline population um, tended to be older cats our case sample wasn't large enough to be able to do any kind of definitive statistics but certainly older cats were overrepresented um, guinea pigs rabbits ferrets also presented um, and the issue we have with our kind of small furry population is how many owners would actually take their animal to the vet practice? How many would find the animal before they actually succumbed? Um, and so I, I do strongly suspect a lot of the, the kind of caged pets that die during the summer months are potentially found dead having suffered a severe fatal episode of heat-related illness. Um, and all of the animals that, that were brought in that were not dogs were down to environmental exposure to, to heat as opposed to exercise. Obviously, with cats, we let them out, we let them roam, we let them be independent. So we don't actually know what happens to cats. So it's possible some cats could have developed exertional heat-related illness. Um, but certainly for our kind of caged rabbits, guinea pigs, ferrets, it's being trapped in a hot environment um, that, is, that is the killer for them. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, so looking towards the future, obviously, you know, I, I don't think you have a, a, a free year probably in the future to, to repeat this study again. But what I suppose what questions would you are, are left unanswered? What, what things would you like to delve deeper into? So the first thing that we're actively working on at the moment um, is we, as I've said, we, we're kind of we're trialing the clinical grading tool that we developed in emergency care practices. So 
with that, we're asking clinicians to grade their patients and record how they've cooled them, what temperatures were presented, um, and what the outcome was. But we're not asking them to treat them any differently. We're, we're simply asking them to kind of audit the presentation of these cases so that we can look at whether our grading tool is accurate more than anything, um, and so that we can start to build some some evidence around how these cases are managed and, and what outcomes are associated with, with specific treatments. Um, so cooling dogs is definitely a primary concern for us because I want to dispel the myth that we shouldn't be aggressively cooling because if it works in people and it works in horses and from a kind of purely physical point of view, the longer an animal is hot, the more damage is being done. Um, so we desperately want to generate some cooling data. Um, that That's really, I think, the biggest unanswered question. Whether or not we can come up with a means of monitoring temperature in real time, I think that may be more important as we go forward. Certainly in human athletes, they're using implantable and ingestible telemetry devices that read data, that read temperature, you know, every couple of seconds, real time during marathons, during the Olympics, etc., so that they can spot early problems. Um, whether or not there is any way of doing that in a in a humane, low cost way to, to better monitor animals, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there was a microchip, sorry to interrupt, wasn't there a microchip that records temperature? We, we've looked at these. We have two big issues. Number one is the new law regarding chipping dogs because every dog has to be chipped before it's rehomed as a puppy. The temperature sensing microchips are more expensive and breeders don't tend to use them. So, yeah, unless we can get to a dog before it's been microchipped, it tends to now have a non-temperature reading microchip in it, which is a shame. Um, but we have looked at the temperature chips and an issue with that is it's in dogs, we implant them under the skin. And the skin is a major site of thermoregulation. Um, you know, you, you pump blood to the skin to, to cool, to um, to lose heat through convection and obviously as people through evaporation. So we are seeing a huge variation in microchip temperatures depending on whether the dog is lying in the sun, lying in front of a fire, lying on a cold floor. Uh, my friend's Alaskan Malamute can go from 35 to 40 with his microchip depending on whether he's lying on the cold stone floor or lying in the sun with the, the chip facing upwards. Um, that said, when the dog is inside at rest, I think there is a use for them. Um, certainly my parents' dog, because obviously all of the animals in my life have had one of these temperature <laughs> microchips implanted into because that's who I am. My cat has one. Um, <laughs> and certainly my parents' dog, when he's been unwell, the first thing I get them to do is scan his chip. And quite often he is pyrexic on his, his microchip. And then, you know, they've not had to fight to try and get a rectal temperature. And I know I'm dealing with a pyrexic family dog that I need to go and have a look at. Um, so I, I think there is some use for them, but whether they could ever... <sighs> be used for that purpose or it would be complicated because you've got to factor in solar radiation wind speed activity of the animal location of the chip thickness of the skin yeah it's uh it's tricky they did seem to be quite effective in ferrets though and possibly just because they're so much smaller and their skin's that much thicker and then you don't have to get bitten by a ferret to take its temperature. Sorry, I digress. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I think that's great because I suppose I often thought I, I, I um, know that they exist, but I, I don't know how long they. Because I imagine when you scan them, you, you get a temperature there, but it doesn't. Does it does it have the ability to um, show you what the temperature was like? I don't know, ten minutes ago, twenty minutes ago, an hour ago. No, so they are they're purely they provide you with the temperature reading as you scan the chip 
So the little electromagnetic and magical physical world of electricity that I don't understand field that activates the microchip to, to give you the reading on the number, um, to give you the chip number triggers a temperature reading you could potentially mount a data logger on a harness and i'm giving away our future research ideas here but hey ho we're busy people maybe someone else can do it for us um so yeah if, if someone could create a harness that sat on, on the back of the dog and it could then log them um and you could get continuous readouts so it's a, it's a possibility so so more more data <coughs> is is needed to um yeah um, to i suppose work, yeah. work that out in um, horses sorry just okay. on a tangent they implant them into muscles so they do appear to be much more you know closer to, to core body temperature than when they're under the skin and do they use them to monitor temperature in horses to know when to cool them down or is it they are starting to use and also from a biosecurity point of view being able to you know if you've just you know moved in 20 new young horses to, to you know a, a location you can have a data logger at something like the water trough where the horse is going to want you know visit on a regular basis throughout the day log those temperatures and then flag up if one develops an elevated body temperature so you can go out and check whether it's pyrexic or purely hypothermic because they've been bombing around as horses tend to do it's quite clever um do you, do you think is there, is there anything um else emily that um do you think we should mention that we haven't um no, I think, you know, dogs don't just die in hot cars. Exercise is hugely important. Being aware, I think maybe actually just recognising that if your dog has been in a hot environment, be that a building, a car, the sun, um, you know, on a hot day, and they are panting and not stopping, and they're starting to slow down, they're perhaps not behaving quite as they normally would do in terms of wanting to play, wanting to respond to you, um, then take note that that is mild heat related illness and you need to stop whatever they're doing that's making them hot get them into a cool environment and if it's not stopping if the panting is continuing and worsening then you need to be thinking about cooling them and phoning your vet practice um because the longer you let it progress the more likely they are to die sadly well um maybe we'll uh, leave it <laughs> at, that, at that point emily thanks for that. <laughs> Always leave with a with a positive spin, but no. But um, thank you so much for for joining us and and um, and a really interesting topic and and particularly that point about that you know maybe the you know the knowledge is there that that hot cars are bad, but actually exercise is is a is a, the the bigger problem. So um, so thank you for for the, the work you've done and thank you for for talking to us today. No, thank you for having me. Well, we'll wrap it up there. So um, thanks again for listening. And don't forget to hit subscribe on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a review, a five-star review or, or higher if, if they exist, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, any any others. We're, we're quite happy to have anyone listen. We'll place some show notes on the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, then please get in touch. You can either email um, DB barfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.